Welcome back to Origins and Evolution. This will be our sixth episode, and the focus will be on space travel and the various diseases and DNA damage that we must deal with in order to traverse farther and farther throughout space safely, in order to one day colonize planets and other star systems. The first question of the day is why must humanity improve its ability to treat and prevent cancer in order to reach increasingly distant planets? Well, this is our future. I believe that we are just seeing the beginning of our space expansion as a species in the solar system to begin with and for a long time it will be just the solar system but as we see the more distant future even beyond the solar system so for the first time we will encounter uh, conditions and stress to our biological bodies uh, that are shielded here on the surface of the earth and many of them relate to malfunctions of the genome of DNA as a molecule and hence to the development of different types of cancer. Indeed, Dimitar, we're lucky here on Earth because we're shielded so well. We have our magnetosphere that keeps away the solar wind, the ionized particles, and we have our atmosphere, which is uh, fairly dense compared to Mars, for instance, which shields us from most cosmic radiation. And finally, although I leave that to you to explain, there ultimately is a heliosphere that protects all inner planets uh, of our solar system from even higher doses. Perhaps you could even just kick things off in explaining yeah, what, so what is maybe, cosmic yeah. radiation. You're right, Frank. Let's, let's explain to our listeners what is it that we are talking about. Okay, so what is, is it that we are shielded from? First and foremost, here on the surface of the Earth, we are shielded from what are called cosmic rays. Uh, coming from the galaxy, galactic cosmic rays, as well as similar, usually, events which come from our own star, the Sun. Cosmic rays is a misnomer. They were discovered a long time ago before uh, scientists actually knew what they were. Uh, They're not rays. They're not light or electromagnetic radiation. The cosmic rays are essentially particles, atomic nuclear fragments, if you will, But really, 90% of uh, what we call cosmic rays, protons, nuclei of hydrogen, which move at extremely high speeds. 10% of the nuclei of helium, or also known as alpha particles, they are ubiquitous. They are over uh, the galaxy and the solar system. They are not, we can't shield from them with the magnetic field efficiently because they're very moving very fast. And as soon as they penetrate the atmosphere of the Earth, fairly high above the surface, they eventually hit a molecule or atom in the upper atmosphere, which creates what is called a shower of high-energy particles, which are also uh, dangerous. Many of them are exotic or have exotic names, pions and muons, which eventually reach the surface. And this is the cosmic ray flux that commercial airline pilots get or we even get at small doses here on the surface and we've lived with that those cosmic rays for all this time but once we leave uh, the surface and the atmosphere of the earth and eventually the magnetosphere of the earth uh, going towards the moon and mars we are fully exposed to to the full brunt of those cosmic rays particles including the ones that come from the sun uh, during particularly active moments, which on average occur every couple of months. The ones from the sun are also particles, 
they are uh, hydrogen mostly and helium particles. They are less energetic than the cosmic uh, galactic ones, but they are equally damaging. So you may ask, well, what's the damage uh, factor here? Well, they are, they are like bullets. They go through your body and mostly damage DNA uh, from experiments uh, people have done in two ways. By direct hit, the so-called double-strand uh, breaks, they literally cut uh, a DNA molecule into two pieces and in half or in pieces. And by producing a whole string of um, very reactive uh, radical molecules, basically from hitting or affecting water molecules which are surrounding DNA, which then react with DNA or RNA or other molecules in the cell and sometimes cause even more trouble. So this is something which is the factor number one in cosmic travel. And if I may chime in, double-stranded DNA breaks are particularly nasty. Uh, our DNA is such an incredible long-term stable information storage medium, if you like, because of its double-stranded nature in a double helix. Right, so if um, if there is a single stand strand break, it can self repair. There are the DNA repair mechanisms. You just have your template, so you repair it with a complementary nucleic acid. But a double stranded break, of course, is not easily repaired. There are other repair mechanisms, but they're less efficient. So, as you've said, these cosmic and solar rays or particles, high high energy particles with that cause double-stranded DNA breaks directly or indirectly, as you've explained, Dimitar, are particularly nasty DNA damage that can then begin, that can lead to oncogenesis, to the beginnings of, of cancer, whether that then is an accumulation of successive mutations or whether it triggers one of these genome destabilizations that we were talking about in the previous episodes where a, a then very significant macroevolution in the genome occurs once it has been destabilized with large-scale rearrangements of, of gene fragments and even between chromosomes. Yes, and so we need to have some way to deal with that, which in some ways goes beyond what our bodies have kind of gotten used to being shielded on the surface of the Earth. Just uh, for some comparison, so you can get some sense um, if you on Mars, Mars has an atmosphere, so you're not completely exposed to uh, the cosmic ray flux. But obviously, you have a significantly higher radiation dosage than here on Earth. What the Earth atmosphere accomplishes in shielding uh, is equivalent to about five meters of a layer of soil on Mars. So, in other words, if you're five meters below the surface of the ground, then you get the same protection from cosmic ray particles and damage that you get just by being on the surface of the Earth. That's kind of the comparison. Get your bearings on this. This is still um, not too bad uh, in the sense that the overall dose, radiation dose that you will get uh, if you're an astronaut going to Mars and working there for a couple of years is acceptable uh, in medical terms. You're not going to be badly exposed 
susceptible to disease immediately. But for future colonization of Mars with people living there permanently, that is certainly a factor that needs to be addressed. We'd better give them a lot of vitamin D if they're five meters underground uh, up there. Of course, um, I understand from you from our earlier conversations that they could come to the surface and with a suitable spacesuit, because after all, there's a near vacuum, could work and, and, and explore on the surface of Mars at least for a few hours. So, Dimitar, what about um, shielding by waters? Um, by water, excuse me, I've read that water is a pretty good shield and, and there might be even clothing and, and spacesuits that incorporate water layers or something chemically similar that has a lot of protons, right? Yeah, water, too. So uh, water is that? an amazing substance. Uh, as it happens for high-energy radiation, and we know that now for quite a few years um, with our experience with nuclear reactors and nuclear physics in general, water is one of the best shields. And because water happens to also be very important to life and to our existence, as well as in the future for fuel, actually it makes a perfect shield. You, can, uh, you need water on board of your spaceship or at your dwelling's uh, location on Mars. So why not use the water that you store and need as a shield as well? It doesn't spoil the substance, water absorbs those particles and quickly redistributes the energy. Keeps the bacterial water. load down, if you yeah, a little bit of radiation. Uh, that's right? for sure. Uh, but basically what I'm saying is it is a shield which is essentially perfect because you can still use the substance uh, and it continues to be active as a shield. It doesn't deteriorate as a shield and it doesn't deteriorate as a uh, water that you need for your existence. So in my mind, both for space travel and for dwellings on Mars, water is the best way. Do you have to build that into the structures of the future dwellings, or is this something an astronaut could wear in there in a, in a spacesuit? I would uh, uh, no, I would I would not wear this in a spacesuit. It's too uh, bulky and heavy. Actually, speaking of Mars, again, the atmosphere provides enough protection there that on average, uh, the estimate is on average, if you spend three hours uh, in a spacesuit outside working on the surface of my, Mars, your dose rate is going to be normal for 60 years or more. So basically, there is no serious problem there. However, future permanent residents of Mars may want to uh, go one step further and modify their genomes, uh, essentially have preventative therapy in order to improve their or decrease their chances of getting radiation sickness on Mars. So uh, here comes active evolution, evol evolving ourselves. How interesting. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about absolutely. the ideas of, of using genetic engineering or CRISPR-Cas systems to preventively or uh, preemptively modify the genome to make us more suitable as a species or as a subspecies uh, that of, of future space travelers? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we already do that for to avoid disease, which plagues us here on the surface of the Earth. And there is a situation in which the change is 
in my mind, completely ethically acceptable because these are people who have already decided that they want to live permanently on another planet, on Mars. And this is just their adaptation to the new conditions. And one of them is to live with a higher radiation dose, particularly the type relating to cosmic ray damage. And so the question is, do we know how to do it? Not yet, but we already have some ideas of uh, what is involved. As you mentioned earlier, double-stranded damage or break DNA particularly bad because our current machinery, the enzymatic machinery for detecting and repairing that damage is not really built up to do this effectively because it's not an important form of damage in the shielded environment here, but there it is. And so maybe it's good to revert to some approaches and techniques that cells used in the early evolution before even many of the enzymes had had been developed yet. Here I'm referring particularly to the work of one of our colleagues, Professor Ting Wu and George Church, but particularly Professors Wu Lab at the Harvard Medical School. Her work studying the so-called ultra-conserved elements in our genomes the ultra-conserved elements are short pieces interspersed in all the different chromosomes and uh, along DNA uh, in any, any living thing that we know of. And they're called conserved or ultra-conserved because we observe no changes to them across time and population. So they're, they're always the same. Uh, they're very very strongly conserved or ultra-conserved. Also from species to species? and Yes. So basically, Ting Wu calls them one of the biggest mysteries of the genome. And there is no good understanding of why they're there, how did they develop, and why even they develop, and uh, what's their function, if they do have a function. You would argue that if something is conserved, it must have a very important function, because otherwise it would probably be randomized and not conserved. There is an important function related to them, although it's not clear. It's the function which creates them, or they create the function. Uh, An idea, and you know, it's at this point just an idea that uh, Professor Wu is working on finding evidence for, is that they might be a a way for uh, the genome to test for breaks and damage beyond what is done by the enzymatic machinery. That is, uh, you can see how two allelic copies of each of those ultra-conserved elements can compare each other and see if they actually match. They should match because they're ultra-conserved. And if they don't, then immediately a reaction is triggered to destroy that cell or to do something about it. Obviously, in many cases, a repair is not possible, but it's, it's better to destroy the cell as opposed to, to develop, a, say, a cancerous cell or any other related problem. So uh, in her mind, uh, uh, Ting Wu is thinking of this as maybe a mechanism uh, which allows a future treatment that would help space travelers to prevent the development of cosmic ray-induced cancer before it even arises. That is, any time cosmic ray breaks the DNA, the ultra-conserved elements will immediately 
be able to detect that. So this is one example of what could be a great way to change your constitution, if you want to use this old-fashioned word, as a future inhabitant of Mars, without necessarily causing deleterious side effects uh, to your body, but adapting extremely well to space travel and to your uh, life on the surface of uh, Mars. So that's fascinating because beyond Mars, which of, of course are perhaps one of the rocky moons of, of Jupiter or Saturn, which potentially could be habitats for future space-traveling humans who, who wish to leave Earth or need to leave Earth. We all eventually think about uh, interstellar travel, at least within our galaxy, and, and of course that will be done by, by unmanned space travel in for decades or hundreds of years or maybe forever, who knows. But eventually we all think and maybe dream of or maybe at some point simply find the necessity to do interstellar human travel if we want to preserve the species and, and life on Earth in some way. And um, one of the things that I've always been puzzled by is uh, you would think that because this travel takes so darn long that you'd freeze the astronauts and protect them from aging and from bacterial diseases and even from viral diseases. And then if you can get close enough to the speed of light, you wake them up a few years later or maybe hundreds of years later, perhaps even. Of course, much more time will have passed on Earth because of Einstein's theory of relati special relativity. But that's another point. This will be one-way travel anyway. Nobody will be returning back from interstellar travel. It's a one-way mission or opportunity, like the old pilgrims, perhaps. But if you freeze, you don't stop the DNA damage. In fact, you turn off the DNA repair mechanisms that, that are active in biology. So the accumulation of cosmic ray-induced DNA damage, double-stranded damage, that upon unthawing the, the astronauts that have been perhaps frozen for on their clock, on their spaceship for tens of years or hundreds of years, when they wake up, they would have massive DNA damage and perhaps not be viable or immediately deteriorate into severe cancer progression. So what you are suggesting is that perhaps there, and I think that freezing would still have to be done, but then we need to figure out some of the things that you've been alluding to, Dimitar. Could you... Yeah, speculate absolutely. on In that fact, a little bit more. I, uh, I, I do want to speculate on that because yeah. it's nice to do so, especially when we talk about space travel to the stars. I think all of these ideas are great because they also come back and occasionally have direct practical applications here on Earth today. And so one of them is relates to what you just said and um, our, as you know, my particular great passion of working on understanding the origin of life chemistry and the onset of evolution and function in molecules like RNA and DNA, it is clear that these molecules and the protocells needed a way to deal with repairing damage in the absence of enzymes. And one of the major part of the genome today is coding for all this army of enzymes which do all kinds of things. 
including repair, detection, repair, follow-up, and so on. In the case of a frozen astronauts, in which a lot of the damage happening, even in the frozen uh, state uh, by the cosmic rays, which don't care about frozen, uh, they would still damage the molecules, will affect the production of the proper enzymes, which then affects the cell and causes all kinds of trouble. So why not try to understand some of those early self-repair mechanisms uh, that protocells and essentially the uh, budding biochemistry of life must have developed and went through before the full army of enzymes was developed. If we find out what they are and how they function, why not use them even in our daily lives today? They're perfectly fine. They may not be anywhere as good as the fine-tuned precision enzyme, but they come really handy when the enzyme is uh, damaged or not there. And they might help in cancer. They may help, help in um, or maybe especially in prevention, with early prevention, prevention, meaning uh, dealing with cancer before cancer has even happened. So by the same token, I think I would then conclude from that until we've made a lot more progress in how to prevent early state, how to prevent early stage or precancerous modifications and early stage cancer, we cannot really dream of interstellar manned interstellar travel. Uh, perhaps we can go to Mars uh, in the next few decades, but um, we have to make a lot of progress in, in figuring out how to prevent and then early, early on treat, perhaps by CRISPR methods uh, with ultra-conserved elements or, or totally different approaches or a multitude of approaches uh, to treat cancer much, much, much earlier if we, because that's what, what these brave future astronauts who are willing to go to exoplanets on, on, uh, in, and do interstellar travel absolutely will need or, or when they get there or there we, uh, we thaw them when they get there they would otherwise probably have rampant cancer and yeah I and think there be will be definitely a burst of innovation the moment there is a more or less permanent community on Mars because these people will drive it there is no question in my mind that this is going to happen. And we will have a subspecies, a human subspecies, Homo marziensis, or uh, something along those lines, as subspeciation of the, of the Homo yeah, sapiens species eventually. almost seems inevitable anyway in order for the species to ultimately survive or, or, or at least not be a dead end. Thank you for joining us for the sixth episode of Origins and Evolution. This has been part one of our space travel and cancer episode. Please join us again next time as we leave our own solar system in order to discuss space travel all throughout the Milky Way galaxy. Thank you very much.